You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 23. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's interview is a part of our Science Communicators series. We're talking with Jason Goldman, a freelance science writer and podcast host. It was great to chat with a fellow science-based podcast host who has really put a lot of thought into some of nature's big questions. In addition to Jason's work as a science communicator, we talk about the subject of his PhD research, which he describes as what happens when birds grow up in virtual reality. We'll track Jason's development into a full-time science communicator and chat about some of his favorite science topics to write about. Let's jump into the interview. I'm here with Jason Goldman, who is a freelance science communicator and the host of the podcast, The Wildlife, which is sponsored by EarthTouch. How are you doing today, Jason? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Thanks a lot for coming on to the show today. Uh, The first question I have for you is... I just want to get a sense of what first sparked your interest in science. Oh man, in science in general? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I um I I've al- I always, you know, a lot of people have that sort of story about how they were a kid and first looked through a telescope or first caught a lizard or something. And I kind of wish I had one of those stories because it would make for a far more interesting narrative, I think. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I've always sort of been interested, you know, like growing up in school, I was always uh, intro- into my science classes. But um, in college, I sort of bounced around from major to major. Um, eventually, I landed on psychology. Um, and I really liked, you know, I was really interested in learning about what what makes people do what they do. Um, I think looking backwards, you know, from where I am now as a science communicator, sort of the the steps from there to here sort of make sense. But at the time, I can't, you know, looking forward from back then, I'm not sure I would have articulated the notion that I was into science necessarily, um, you know, much before college. Um, but, uh, you know, once I, once I sort of got mired in psychology and cognitive science and really started to think about, um, you know, how, how the mind works and things like that um, is sort of when I started, uh, you know, reading, uh, reading a lot about evolution and a lot about comparative psychology and trying to think about where humans fit in uh, sort of in the broader uh, animal kingdom. And just like in the in the perhaps in the universe even more broadly, um, I actually it actually wasn't a psychology class that first got me really thinking seriously about evolution, um, which I think is sort of what set me down the course of what I ended up studying in grad school. It was actually a course I took in the religion department at USC uh, in LA called uh, "Evolution, Free Will, and the Problem of the Soul." Um, and that was sort of the first time in an academic setting, at least, that I was exposed to people uh, like Richard Dawkins and, and Dan Dennett. Um, and so it was kind of interesting that I was actually in a, in, a, in a religion department class rather than like a psychology department class um, where, I, where I sort of first started thinking about those kinds of things. Yeah, for sure. That is that's definitely fascinating. And and so, I mean, you you mentioned that uh, psychology is sort of. Uh, I mean, it sounds like those were maybe some of the first science based classes that 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 you took um, at at a university. But um, it, it it sounds like you know your sort of uh, driving uh, uh, interest is, is is based around evolution. Does does that sound accurate? Yeah, yeah, it certainly became that way. You know, I was like when you're a kid and you're you're you know when I would go hiking and stuff in the Santa Monica Mountains or at summer camp. Um, I'm not sure. You know, now I think of that like that's clearly about being in nature and like paying attention to what's around you and um, thinking about those kinds of things. At the time, I'm not sure I would have articulated it that way. I just like being outside. Um, but from a from an academic perspective, so so in some ways, I would say that you know you could probably you know trace my interest in sort of the natural world back to you know hiking in LA as a kid, um, 
and you know uh, uh, having like the the animals that we had in our kindergarten classroom and stuff like that. I was t- we had a a desert tortoise that I was completely obsessed with, um, even at age you know at age five in my kindergarten classroom. Um, but from an academic perspective, it was certainly um, thinking about evolution and thinking about uh, the evolution of of the mind and of behavior and things like that that sort of set me up for what I would go on to study in grad school for sure. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, I, I do want to sort of delve into uh, the, the focus of your, your PhD research because it, it just sounds absolutely fascinating to me and, and I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to learn more about it <laughs> because you, you describe it as, uh, uh, as, as trying to figure out what happens when birds grow up in virtual reality. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, that really sparks my curiosity. Uh, can, can you give can you give us a little bit more information on on, on sort of what what exactly you were trying to, to figure out through this research? And, and yeah, yeah. So so it wasn't like um, so we we in my in my lab we studied uh, chickens. We did controlled rearing experiments with uh, domestic chickens um, because they happen to be in many ways a good model uh, for understanding the human mind. Um, and when I say virtual reality, it's not as if I had the world's tiniest little Oculus Rift goggles um, that we placed on the chickens. It was just that um, we we sort of designed these cages um, for the for the chickens where the walls were made out of computer monitors. Uh, so from like we we would we would get the eggs and hash them in an incubator and then uh, put each of the chickens into their, into their cage um, in, in complete darkness. So they would never actually see us. Like Because we could control what was displayed on the walls of their cages, we could control their visual experiences uh, from the moment that we took them out of the incubator. Um, and by controlling the kinds of, ex- kinds of visual experiences we gave them, um, on these computer screens, on these cage walls, uh, we could uh, then ask questions about what kinds of visual inputs a mind might need in order to develop, uh, you know, in an expected way or perhaps in a in a unexpected way. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, so what were you hoping to to discover through this research? I mean, what what was your in- initial hypothesis going into it? Well, so so to back up for a second. Um, you know, if you want to understand the starting state of the mind, if you want to understand what's really, really innate, um, you need to start studying. Uh, you need to sort of use an organism that you can test on the first day of life. Um, and human infants are not that. Um, and there's a lot of great, great research in in the child development, you know, literature. People who are studying sort of how how infants, how human babies, think about the world. Uh, but a human infant, in the vast majority of cases, is six months or eight months or a year old before they can really participate in a basic looking time experiment or an experiment that requires them to point to something or reach for something. You know, these are sort of the basic tools that child psychologists have. You know, our, our looking time and reaching, um, and those can tell you that those kinds of experiments can tell you some interesting things, but. If you're setting a six-month-old human infant, you can't really get at what's innate because human infants are learning machines. And a six-month-old human infant has spent six months learning about the world. Um, so if you really, really want to get to the, you know, the starting state, you need an animal that, that you can start testing from the first day of life. Um, and it turns out that chickens are a really useful species for that because they need no parental care. Um, so, uh, you know, unlike a primate, like a human, um, who does rely on being raised by, uh, older members of its species, um, an infant chicken is fully capable of surviving on its own as soon as it hatches. It's got good eyesight. It can, it's, it's capable of, uh, uh, self-guided locomotion. It can sort of walk around, um, on its own. It can find food and water, um, and all those kinds of things that like a human infant has to learn, um, and, and many, many infant animals across the animal kingdom have to learn. Uh, chickens are sort of ready to go right away. Um, so it wasn't, I mean, I, I personally, I'm interested in animals, so I'm interested in animals. And I'm interested in sort of the relationship between ecology and cognition and behavior. In my lab, you know, it was sort of 
because chickens were the most useful model to understand uh, humans. Um, the same way that in medical labs we use rats and mice, and the same for the same reason that m- most of what we know about memory comes from sea slugs, um, because that's the most uh, useful model for those kinds of questions. It turns out that chickens are one of the most useful models for for these kinds of questions. Um, okay, so you're using chickens as a model to make discoveries about how the human mind works, right? Yeah, or how 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 a mind more generally you know, develops from, from birth. Okay. So even though this seems like, uh, like sort of a narrow focus, I mean, you're, you're actually trying to answer a, a pretty big picture question here. Yeah. I mean, these are questions that, you know, like, uh, the, like the ancient philosopher, the ancient philosophers wrote about, right. Sort of what, uh, w- what makes a mind, um, this, you know, these are questions that, that Descartes was concerned with and, and Aristotle and Kant, um, and sort of now we finally have the kinds of tools we can use to really get at these questions, um, which uh, was one of the things that really drew me to this, um, to this sort of uh, uh, you know research methodology, this, this set of questions. And so in my lab, but you know we were studying everything from uh, object recognition to face perception and numerical cognition. And um, my my dissertation in particular was on. Um, an aspect of social cognition um, that's concerned with how we comprehend the actions of others. Um, whether there's a claim made in the uh, human infant literature, the child development literature, that the ability to distinguish intentional from accidental actions um, is like doesn't require learning. You know that it's something that we sort of are born with, or or at least develops without any external experience required right right um which i mean that's that's a pretty sophisticated kind of skill it seems to me um and so we sort of set about creating the chicken versions of some of the classic human uh infant experiments um that that get at that question um and that's that's sort of what my uh what my dissertation was 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 focused on, and, and the first the first of my dissertation papers actually just came out a couple of months ago in animal cognition. Oh, fantastic, fantastic! Well, congrats on that. Thanks. Um, so I I, I do want to kind of get into a little bit of the logistics of how this worked, right? Because I am still trying to sort of visualize, you know, imagining a, a, a you know. A, a, a little chicken or a little chick that just hatched out of its egg, you know, in this room surrounded by uh, uh, television screens. I mean, what 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 are you showing on these screens? You know, uh, like how, how are you, you know, trying to create an environment that will allow you to ask this question? Right. So, so the another reason why chickens happen to be a fantastic model is that, um, like like some other birds, uh, they imprint onto the first moving object that they see. And so normally, you know, for, for a normal chicken, uh, that's like, uh, you know, mom and maybe it's siblings. Um, and it's uh, motivated to stay as close to mom as possible. It uh, you know, drives comfort from being in proximity to mom. And if it's separated from mom, it will do everything it can to reunite with mom. Um, so this is sort of the principle that's used. I don't know if you remember the early 90s movie Fly Away Home with a very young Anna Paquin um, but that was sort of the the movie version of the story in which um, uh, you know a researcher uh, had to like had to train young uh, goslings to, to migrate um, and so he imprinted them to himself and this is something that even Conrad Lawrence did um, you know he imprinted uh, baby birds to himself and they would follow him around and swim after him and walk behind him and those kinds of things. Um, so chickens do this. Chickens imprint in the first moving object they see and if the first thing they see is mom then that's fine. But this is sort of just a generalized mechanism. And there, there is, you know, if you give a chicken an option between imprinting to an adult chicken and something else that moves they'll imprint onto the sort of chicken-like figure. But in the absence of that, they'll imprint onto just about anything. Um, and so that we can sort of use that as a way to probe the way they think about the world. So if the first thing that they see is a, an animated 
red circle moving around a computer screen, um, then they will imprint to that red circle and that sort of mom, and they will follow that red circle around. And if you uh, take the red circle off of the screen for a minute um, and then put it back uh, you know, somewhere else on one of the other screens, it will sort of run across the cage and to, to sort of hang out next to mom. Um, and we can sort of we can use that motivation in order to uh, sort of probe the way that the that the animal thinks. So, for example, if let's say let's say what we're interested in, in is uh, color perception, whether whether chickens can distinguish red from blue. So maybe what we do is imprint the infant chicken to a red circle, um, and then during a testing phase. Maybe on on one of the computer monitors on one side of the cage, we put uh, the red circle, and on one of the computer monitors on the opposite side of the cage, we put a blue circle. And now we just ask which side of the cage does the chicken prefer to hang out. If they spend most of their time next to the red circle, then that suggests that they might perceive that color difference. Um, if they're basically a chance, if they're spending half their time on one side and half their time on the other, then that suggests that they might not be uh, sensitive to that distinction, or at least that if they are, they don't use it to make that kind of decision. So that, that's sort of the, we can sort of use this evolved mechanism, this imprinting uh, uh, instinct as a way to get at some of these kinds of questions about how, about how they reason about the world. Okay. Okay. So um, I'm starting to get a better sense of, of of what this experiment looks like. So I mean, you have. Uh, so I mean, th- th- this is what you were doing. You were imprinting the, the uh, a chicken onto this this red dot, and you know. So I guess my my next question would be like, how, how do you take that to the next? Yeah. I mean, step? And o- yeah, obviously, you- obviously, like uh, the kinds of like animations that, and things that we were imprinting into were a little bit more nuanced than that. Um, you know, we, we, we know a few things about chickens. Like, we, we already know about their color vision, for example. Right. Um, that's sort of just an easy easy sort of example to understand sort of the way this sort of testing paradigm works. Um, but I was, uh, for some of my experiments, I was using a red, a red circle that would move around, um, and it would sort of uh, uh, it d- display different kinds of actions. Um, and... Uh, uh, it, it it turned out that the chickens the the, the chickens in some ways um, could distinguish you know a red circle that did one kind of an action from a red circle that did a different kind of an action um, in 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 some sort of very carefully controlled sort of situations um, and in some of the other experiments of mine um, I used like a little animated person um, the, the we I used a, a like a graphic animation program called Poser. Um, which is like the same software that they used to animate like the Shrek movies and stuff. Right. Um, and it comes with sort of this built-in human figure that you can animate. You can make his arms wave or you can make his legs kick around or his head turn and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I use that uh, sort of little animated person uh, for some of my experiments. And... Uh, you know, some of the other experiments in our lab were using uh, just different shapes and different colors and, you know, or human faces that varied in different kinds of ways, like uh, uh, d- drawings of faces. Um, and, uh, I mean, because, because the chicken can imprint onto the first moving object that it sees, as long as it perceives whatever you're presenting to it as an object um, or an agent, you know, as a as a... As a something that that moves on its own um then then if you can systematically vary the way that you present that object then you can start to ask questions about what kinds of things it's sensitive to i I guess i'm i'm curious to know what you discovered through this research i mean it sounds like it 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 sounds like you were running sort of multiple experiments and 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 Uh, yeah i mean you know a, a bunch of different questions you know through the process of of your research here, but you know, I, I, I guess I'm looking for sort of the big picture uh, take home message here, as far as you know, what you walked away with uh, uh, as a result of this research. So, so for my dissertation in particular, um, based on based on what we found, and all, only one of my my dissertation was basically comprised of three papers, and only one of them has been published so far. Um, but the the sort of the short answer is that. 
these things that uh, are are claimed to be innate or that are claimed to require no learning in human infants seem to actually require some kinds of experiences, um, even if they're sort of very simple experiences um, or that even if these sort of skills uh, come together fairly rapidly in, in development, um, it seems to be that... Uh, the, like the ability to distinguish an accidental from an intentional action is something that, that requires, requires experience. The ability to evaluate whether an action is rational or not, um, which means that um, rationality is a sort of interesting idea in the action comprehension literature where... Um, how can I explain this? Um, it, it's sort of a way that you infer the goal of an action, um, and the, the, the assumption is that any action that's goal-directed would be executed in the most efficient way possible. And so that you sort of you, you can sort of predict what the goal is based on the action, or you or if you know what the you know what the uh, action is, you can predict what the goal of it might be. And then if the action deviates from your prediction, then maybe it's got a different goal. Does that make sense? Sure. sure. So that kind of reasoning is also something that's claimed. Um, that doesn't require all that much experience. Um, and that's even, you know, more sophisticated. Um, and it turns out something like that, uh, I'm pretty sure, at least based on based on my research, that it, it requires some kinds of experiences. And that doesn't mean that there aren't other things that are sort of functional immediately upon birth. Um, you know, some of the sort of... Uh, 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 building blocks of those kinds of skills. Um, so that's that's kind of I, I don't want to say too much because not everything's been published yet. Um, but uh, the paper that has come out was basically showing that infant chickens uh, or newly hatched chickens uh, are capable of distinguishing actions from each other, like. They can distinguish very, very nuanced uh, differences among actions, even if they're made by the same agent. Okay, okay. And so I would imagine that, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, uh, wanting to take a step back and, and, and look at the big picture here, right? Because, I mean, we were talking about how these, these questions that, that you were trying to, to address through this research, that you were really looking to address these big picture questions, right? And so I would imagine that, you know, if, if, uh, uh, if this is the case for chickens, then it would have to be the case for humans. Yeah, I, I mean, you know... And obviously, you don't know that. I mean, I know, I know right. you can't say that 100% one way or the <laughs> other because it's, you know, super difficult to design an experiment like that with, with a human. And obviously, right. that's not what you did. But, I mean, it, 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 it seems like that would be a, a sort of the, the next logical step. As yeah, well. I mean, I would think so. And, and it, it turns out, actually, that there are the avian brain and the primate brain or the mammalian brain... Um, in some ways, um, you know, they're, obviously they're organized very, very differently um, at sort of the, the macro scale. Um, but when you sort of get down into the neural architecture, and, and this is something where, you know, my expertise uh, sort of uh, becomes less expert, um, there, 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 are, there are a lot of actual interesting similarities in terms of the way uh, different parts of the brain are connected with each other and things like that. Um, so it's not just that, you know, because they're an animal and evolution works the way it does, um, that you can use a different species as a model. It turns out that there's actually um, some interesting ways in which the avian brain and the primate brain are similar. Um, so you can sort of get at questions about, very fundamental questions about how, you know, how you build a mind, basically. Sure, sure, and I mean this. It, it seems to me like there's there's this trend uh, uh, towards uh, scientists recognizing higher levels of cognition, you know, uh, uh, amongst many species, you know, um, but but a lot of bird species in particular, yeah, um, you know, in, in 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 recent years. I mean, is is, is that something that that I don't know. I mean, am I accurate in that sort of assessment of, of uh, the sort of the current state of this type of research? Yeah, yeah. I think we're getting better 
I think we're getting better at um, sort of testing different species in species-appropriate sort of fair ways, um, for one thing, um, which, which sort of gets back to that point I made earlier about how one of the things that I was really interested in was understanding behavior and cognition within the context of ecology, you know, within the context of the environment in which an animal or a species lives or evolved. Um, so, you know, there are, you know, uh, uh, like think about the, the mirror test, right? Which, you know, is when you put, uh, an animal or a human in front of a mirror and you draw a dot on its forehead. And according to the way the test works, if the, if the, um, you know, if you do it with a human child, if the child touches its own forehead after looking at its reflection in the mirror, that suggests something, um, perhaps about the way it, it reasons about itself. Um, but that doesn't mean that that kind of a test is a fair way to, um, is a fair way to evaluate every species. Right. Right. Um, but you know, so if you give that kind of a test to a dog, it will fail. But if you use scent instead of vision, you know, dogs are very good at distinguishing their own scent from the scent of others. Um, so that's that's sort of a silly contrived example, um, but ju- just the, you know the notion that you have to uh, treat a species. Um, you know, I, it's funny. I just spent like half an hour telling you about how we can use chickens to think about people, and we can in many ways. But also in many ways, we have to evaluate a species. You know, within within its own context um, and by its own rules. Um, so yeah, I would say that um, you know because I think we're getting better at. At thinking about how to do that, um, we're sort of discovering some skills and abilities in different animals that uh, before we thought were perhaps uniquely human or unique to primate lineage or, or things like that. A, a lot of my experience um, in, in the realm of, of biology comes from um, the, the time I spent working as a field biologist with the, the California condor um, down in Arizona and Utah. And Amongst the folks that 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 I worked on 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 that crew, um, you know, we would sort of jokingly refer to the the, the condors in the population as flying monkeys, um, <laughs> because so much of the behavior seemed so familiar to us, and we spent so much time, you know, observing these animals and, and getting to know them as individuals. You know, there's only between seventy and eighty individuals in the population, so you get to know each individual animal and you know you, you you start to understand different personality traits yeah. um and and uh, certainly there's uh, uh, uh there's there's obviously a certain amount of you know anthropomorphizing that that is going on um in in that type of situation but at the same time i mean you know all, all, all these folks are scientists and you know they they are sort of you know observing these be- behaviors um, uh, with with a critical eye, and you know, I, I, I think there is definitely something to that, and it, it, it's interesting to hear you talk talk about how similar the avian brain is in a lot of ways to to the primate brain. That, that's definitely something that that we recognized, you know, working with that species in particular. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that we have to be we have to sort of guard against uh, you know anthropomorphizing these animals, um, but I also you know we also have to like equally vigorously uh, guard against uh, feeling like we're all that special. And I feel like in some ways um, th- this, uh, th- the working hard at the first has sort of prevented us from appreciating the second, if that makes sense. Um, you know, both things are true. Like animals are not people, but also people are animals. <laughs> um and sort of negotiating that line is is certainly complicated, um, but on on balance, I think it's probably more instructive to uh, keep in mind that that people are animals too, and in 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 the vast majority of cases, we're not really all that special or unique. Um, than it is to, um, I, I think that's probably the more important lesson to keep in mind in most cases <laughs> sure sure so um y- you have this research background obviously which which we've been talking about but um you know you're you you also work as as a science writer and and, and a science communicator um and um i, I, I mean 
I guess, I guess I'm wondering, you know, I mean, which came first or did they, you know, did, did these sort of two interests, I mean, did they sort of, uh, uh, um, happen simultaneously? I mean, have you always been interested in sort of taking, you know, uh, I mean, both looking at, at the research and, the, but, but then also communicating it and, and finding a way to communicate it to, to a larger audience, to more than just other scientists? Uh, well, when I started grad school, I don't think I knew that science communication was like a thing that it, it, that people did it as their jobs. Um, you know, certainly I knew about science journalists, but I don't think I quite realized the extent of the field. Um, and so, yeah, so that sort of came later, like during grad school, but certainly later. I, um, uh, I actually started out in grad school studying, uh, I was doing MRI experiments of reading and dyslexia. Um, and... I'd been. It's, it's actually. I was actually doing that in the same lab that I had been an undergraduate RA in. So by the time I finished my master's, I had been sort of thinking about those questions for for about five years, and I was starting to itch to think about other things. And I started to realize that the questions that were keeping me up at night were not necessarily the questions I was doing research on. Um, and like you know. As you might imagine, there were more questions about evolution and um, sort of where humans fit into the bigger picture. Um, so I started, uh, I was reading a lot of science blogs at the time, and this was a time when you could just about read every blog post written every day that was about science, um, which is not like today. And uh, I was, you know, be, because I'm a giant nerd and I was a grad student, uh, sort of in my free time for fun, I was reading papers from other fields, right, outside of my own narrow little uh, niche of, underst- uh, of, of reading dyslexia. Um, and I started to realize that the kinds of things I wanted to read about on those blogs were not, um, like there was no one writing them there were there were lots of good psychology blogs that occasionally covered animals and there were uh lots of good sort of uh animal biology sort of or evolution blogs that occasionally covered behavior or cognition but no one that was kind of consistently writing about animal behavior or animal cognition and i i had sort of always self-identified as a writer um and so i thought well maybe i could do that and you know, again, it was a time when there were a lot fewer, like the, the field was a lot more wide open. There were a lot more niches that didn't necessarily have someone blogging regularly about them. So, uh, so yeah, I just started blogging on WordPress. And then within a, uh, it was actually, I, I got very lucky after just a few months, I was invited to join scienceblogs.com um, while I was still in grad school. And, and, uh, and then I was at scienceblogs for about, two years I think uh, before the Scientific American Blog Network was founded and I, uh, I was part of that group of bloggers that started over there um, and by then certainly I was aware of you know the, the notion that people were career science communicators um, but I still liked research but at some point I kind of realized that I liked writing about other people's research more than doing my own and I liked telling stories um, and the kinds of things I would want to do as a researcher moving forward. You know, if I had gone out to try to find a postdoc, um, you know, the, you know, I, I, grad school, I was in a lab. And so if I had done a postdoc, I would have wanted to get out into the field. And I kind of realized that I could do that as a science writer, you know, instead of, instead of chasing monkeys through the jungle, the scientists to collect data, I could chase researchers who are chasing monkeys through the, through the jungle, um, to, to get stories. Um, and that's sort of, I realized that's really what I wanted to do. Um, so I sort of leveraged, I sort of took this thing that I did in my, in my sort of free time as a grad student, uh, you know, for, for a little bit of pocket money um, and sort of uh, turned it, just jumped full into full-time freelancing after I defended and uh, sort of figured out how to turn it into a career. I think there are a, a growing number of folks out there who um, start off, you know, uh, doing research um, and then maybe realize, you know, partway through a graduate program um, that, you know, m- 
maybe the, the, the component of what they're doing that they enjoy most is the part where they, you know, take that research and find a way to communicate it to a, a, a broader audience. Um, and, and I think it's important to say here that, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean you're not a scientist, right? You're just working on a different component of the process. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think science is a way of thinking about the world. Um, and just because you're not actively collecting, you know, data in a hypothesis-driven way doesn't, doesn't take that away. I mean, I, I certainly, I'm trained as a scientist. You know, I, I got my PhD. I, I wrote my dissertation. I did all those kinds of things. Um, I still participate in, you know, as a, as a you know, I, I participate in dozens of citizen science efforts, um, which, you know, is still, is also very valuable data collection in a very different kind of way. Um, so yeah, you know, I, 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 I still think of myself as a scientist. I'm just not actively doing research. So uh, I, I guess I'm wondering, you know, what components of your, your more formal scientific training, what pieces of that training are helpful in your development as a science communicator? And, and, and also if there are pieces of that scientific training that, you know, that, that, that maybe hinder that, <laughs> that, um, that, that step. That's a good question. I, uh, I don't, I don't know if there were hurdles in that sense. There's certainly, I think having the scientific background, um, as a, as a, as a science writer probably, uh, makes me better able to spot, uh, nonsense when it gets published um or at least to uh sort of retain my skepticism and ask the right questions when i see a new finding that maybe strains credulity um you know i think having the scientific background even even if you know some press release or something comes across my inbox that's outside of my immediate area of expertise i think having the background you know learning how to think like a scientist um and use your skepticism as a tool um, is, I think, I think valuable. Um, I also think having the background as a scientist when it comes to interviewing other researchers um, is valuable. You know, I can. My job is to take science and translate it into a way that's understandable to normal people. Um, but if I can sort of speak the scientist's language when I'm interacting with them, um, I think that helps to establish some level of trust. Um, and familiarity, you know, I can sort of use some of the same jargon sometimes and sort of establish that we're, you know, we're, we're part of the same team in some ways. Um, one thing, one thing that took me a while, um, that may have been a bit of a stumbling block was just getting used to reporting, you know, because as a, as a science writer, as a journalist, you sort of have to, you sort of have to ask the dumb questions sometimes. Um, and as a scientist, you're sort of trained to have the answers. Um, and so there'd be times like when I was still in grad school and I was, you know, I was wearing both hats when, uh, I would be like, you know, I am the expert. I don't have to ask you this question. I know what you're going to say. Right. (laughs) Um, like, and I've since learned, I've since learned for one thing that sometimes you ask a question even if you know the answer anyway because you're because you need to get a quote um from a practical perspective but also I think I've just gotten more comfortable with with sort of that kind of reporting in general um you know the idea that you know we we say we say that you know scientists um are supposed to sort of revel in their ignorance in some ways and, uh, you know, push hard against their own ideas. But I think practically or in reality, we sort of train scientists to know a lot of things. Um, and we sort of expect them to know a lot of things. And so those, those two things can sometimes feel a little contradictory when you're trying to be both yeah, for sure. Uh, that that's definitely something that that I've experienced as well. Um, you know, c- in conducting interviews uh, uh, for documentaries, 
you know, and, and especially working on my first documentary film, you know, conducting interviews with people. I mean, I was working, uh, you know, I was shooting for and producing a documentary about California condor recovery um, while I was working as a biologist, you know, as a condor biologist. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it, it, it's hard to know what questions to ask when you're so embedded, you know, right. especially in a, in a particular topic or in a particular issue. You're like, why would I need to ask that question? Everybody, everybody knows, you know, what the wingspan of a California condor is, right? I'm like, well, no, and not everybody does. A lot of people don't understand, you know, that this is a bird with a close to ten foot wingspan. You know, you right. got to say that. Um, and a lot, a lot, a lot of people don't have the background, don't understand, you know, uh, 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 sort of that that basic natural history, and um, and that that's something that that. You know that, that that I deal with, and, and the producers that, that that I work with on our um, on our short documentary series, Eyes on Conservation. That's something we deal with a lot. You know, because we're working with a lot of uh, uh, you know folks who are trained in science and, and and don't yet have that background in in the communication aspect of it. And there's definitely a tendency to um, to, to forget to ask those really basic questions and to yeah. just kind of skim over that that base level information, which you know for your uh, uh, average viewer or listener you know that's going to be their entry point you know that's what's going to get them hooked is you know learning that first bit of interesting information about a species or a conservation issue yeah yeah even now you know even now that i'm fully 100 percent, you know uh a, a science communicator um you know even and, and even in sort of fields that i didn't like, I, I didn't do science in like like climate change you know i'm so in those worlds and I'm so used to reading the literature in those worlds that sometimes I sort of forget or I have to remind myself that, like, sure, people have heard of ocean acidification, for example. But does that mean that they have sort of connected the dots to understand that that means that the pH is changing, that that's what acidification means? Um, you know, the simple, simple things like that are, you know, I have to sort of constantly remind myself are not necessarily obvious or intuitive and just because everyone knows within this small little community doesn't mean that everyone knows in the broader sense so i'm curious to hear uh, how your areas of interest within the field of science have changed you know since sort of making this transition into a a, a full-time science communicator um and I'm, i'm still i'm still very much interested in animal cognition and animal behavior and those kinds of things i think um i've started to uh, write a lot more and therefore think a lot more about conservation issues more generally. And it's, it's all, I mean, all of my work still 99% of the time revolves around animals basically. Cause sort of in the broadest sense, that's where my interest is, you know, whether it's veterinary medicine or, or, you know, wildlife biology or, you know, things like that. Um, the the common link is 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 animals um but i've become a lot more interested in uh well conservation in general um you know i've become a lot more interested in urban ecology and understanding both um you know we're we're sort of discovering in recent years that there's a ton of biodiversity in cities and you know that probably comes from the fact that i live in la um, but we're, we're learning a lot about, uh, you know, the biodiversity that exists in places that we don't traditionally think of as biodiverse. You know, we're, we're sort of trained to think of cities as biodiversity wastelands. Um, so I mentioned that, and I'm also interested in, uh, uh, thinking about how, how cities affect animal behavior, um, for those animals that we do find in the cities. Um, so I've been thinking about this, that, that, that's to say that I've been thinking about cities a lot, um, and from 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 a more academic perspective, uh, like I said before, I think a lot of people in the animal cognition world, um, the cognitive evolution world, don't always think about ecology when they think about behavior and cognition. Um, you know, and I think that's I, I think that the ecologists and the, the cognitive scientists ought to talk to each other more. Um, and so, as a science writer, I, I sort of I sort of enjoy you know thinking about you know what are the ecological realities that may have led this particular species to have this particular kind of cognitive skill. Uh, you know, what, like one of the and this is this is one of those exceptions where 
animal cognition researchers are thinking about ecology um, is, you know, thinking about the distinctions between chimpanzees and bonobos. And it's thought that one of the, um, you know, one of, one of the driving factors that sent sort of the bonobos down one evolutionary line and the chimpanzees down another was their feeding ecology. You know, the bonobos evolved in a landscape where there was plenty of nutrition, there was plenty of food, there was a lot of fruit. Um, while the chimpanzees evolved in a landscape where most of their nutrition came from leaves, which is, you know, ounce for ounce is less nutritious than a fruit. Um, and so as a result, they had to learn how to eat meat, which is a much scarcer resource. And that may have led them to sort of the more aggressive sort of lifestyle that, that we think of when we think of chimpanzees. Um, that, that's that's all to sort of say that I think um, something that I've been really interested in lately is thinking about sort of connecting ecology and animal behavior in a more integrated sort of way. Yeah, and I, I think you've touched on you know a, another one of these sort of really important tasks of the science communicator, right? Which is it's more than just uh, you know taking these science concepts and you know, regurgitating them in a way that the general public can understand it. It's also about connecting, you know, these different, you know, specific areas of science and bringing them together in a way that, you know, even those researchers working in that particular field might have never thought of. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we have an interesting role, you know, because, because we can sort of step back and take in a sort of broader perspective, um, I think we might be able to notice connections that might be missed if you're if you're too zoomed in, you know, onto your you know very particular set of research questions. Um, so yeah, I mean, I you know, it's one of the things I like about being a science communicator is being able to take those steps back and to see those parallels between disparate fields, see those connections. And that's something that some researchers do very well, um, certainly. Um, but uh, but I think it's something that science communicators can certainly have a role in in helping with. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I, I kind of, I kind of want to get your perspective on you know uh, how you see the role of or or what role you see new media specifically is playing in uh, in, in in the science communication field. And, and I mean, this was sort of your entry point into the field. So I, I'm curious to get your perspective on that. Um. Yeah, I don't know if it makes sense anymore to draw these sort of artificial boundaries between new media and old media. Um, you know, even the oldest newspapers are online and are on Instagram and are Snapchatting and, you know, all these kinds of things. Um, so, you know, I think of science, I, I, I think of sort of the science communication ecosystem. Um you know, there's a lot of different trophic levels. You know, there there are certain things, certain kinds of stories, and certain kinds of communication efforts that work best in tweet form, or in a two or three minute YouTube video, um, or uh, via Instagram. And then there are some kinds of stories that work best via a you know an 800 word blog post. Um, there's some kinds of stories that you need. Uh, eighty thousand an eighty thousand word book. Um, there's some kind of stories that you need book length, but you need multimedia. So maybe the ebook is the right you know the right kind of. Value. I think these are all these are all tools that we can use to tell stories. Um, and I think a story can be a hundred forty character tweet, and it can be a hundred thousand word book. Um, I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. And that's that's different from asking the question about how to make a sustainable living as a science communicator. <laughs> but, um, you know, because no one's paying you to tweet. Um, but if we sort of take that, that aspect out of it, I think that, you know, I think it's an ecosystem. And, and you need all of the different pieces in order to have a, a functional ecosystem because you're going to get different audiences in, in different ways. Yeah, that, I think that's a really great way to think about it. Actually, I, I, I like that a lot. You know, thinking of, you know, these these developments in in, in new media and, uh, and and technology as as just sort of expanding our range of options as far as how we reach out to people. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, some some of your science communication efforts are going to be the plankton, and some of them are going to be the great white sharks, right? But if you get rid of one, the other, like down the line, you know, the, the, there will be a trophic cascade, right? If you take the wolves out of Yellowstone, um, you're going to have problems. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I, I think, I mean, may, maybe you've already done this, but I mean, man, that, that'd be a great blog post, you know, or a great <laughs> article, right? So the, the trophic levels of science communication. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's obviously not a perfect analogy, but 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 it it is absolutely an ecosystem. Yeah, I like that. I like that. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Jason, for coming on to the show and sharing this this uh, sort of vast array of knowledge. I mean, going from your your research interests uh, uh, through your transition into a, a science communicator. Um, yeah, very interesting stuff. Thanks for having me. All right, that was Jason Goldman, host of the Wildlife Podcast. I love how Jason describes all the different avenues of communicating science to the public as an ecosystem, with each communication medium filling its own important niche. I'd like to think that he just came up with that one on the spot through the inspiration provided by being a guest on our show, but I can't say that for certain. But what a fascinating interview with a great science communicator who's working to bring together these fields of animal cognition and ecology, among many other things, of course. If you enjoyed today's interview, be sure to check out Jason's podcast, The Wild Life, which you can find over on the website for the Earth Touch Network, uh, or on the iTunes Store and other podcatchers, of course. Uh, We'll include links to his show on the show notes page for this website, which, of course, you can find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC23. That's wildlensinc.org slash EOC23. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. (laughs) 